as the years went on, what I ended up realizing, the more I started to get my mental health under control, the more I realized that the only thing that I have to prove to anybody is that I'm being myself. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be spending some time with Frank Horvat. Frank is a celebrated Toronto-based composer and pianist who for decades has written and performed music across genres, from contemporary classical to musical theater and electronica. In 2017, he was the inaugural recipient of the Kathleen McMorrow Music Award, which recognizes outstanding work by Ontario composers. Frank is devoted to using his creative platform to support and bring awareness to causes about which he's passionate the environment, human rights, and mental health. Examples of his artivism include his album For Those Who Died Trying, that memorializes murdered environmental activists, and the Piano Therapy Concert, a performance he developed and continues to tour in order to share his own mental health journey and to end the stigma around mental illness, particularly in the world of classical music. Early on in the pandemic, with all of his performing dates cancelled, Frank started writing short compositions for a wide array of instruments, from tuba to marimba, that his musician and vocalist friends could rehearse and perform in their homes. He started calling the project Music for Self-Isolation, and eventually wrote 31 pieces. Music for Self-Isolation became an international phenomenon, has since been recorded as an album and is the focus of a documentary film. The music you're currently hearing is from the album and features Tanya Charles Ivanyuk on the violin. And as I'm recording this introduction, Frank is hiking some of the most scenic trails in North America. For work, I swear. He's been commissioned by pianist Kara Huber to compose a suite of solo piano pieces inspired by the hiking paths around the town of Banff, Alberta, in the beautiful Canadian Rockies. And he's currently taking full advantage of a month-long hiking and composing residency at the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity. Frank spoke to me from his home in Toronto. In September of this year, he was kind enough to be a panelist in a virtual salon the Institute produced in order to discuss how artists can navigate mental health challenges. In the salon, he spoke of a crucial turning point in his professional and personal life, namely when he started using his composition as the language with which he could talk about his own struggles with mental illness. I started this interview by asking him if he was conscious of this transition taking place as he was composing or whether the realization came about after the fact. I love your question because it does resonate with me a lot about my composition process. I, you know, often as I'm composing a piece, especially if I'm composing instrumental music where there's literally no words associated, if it's not a vocal piece, I often think about as I'm, especially those opening moments of composing something, 
what is this all about? You know, and I, I find that for me, composing a piece of music, especially instrumental music, is almost a very uh, it's a very subconscious, out of body experience. It takes sometimes it takes a lot a lot longer for my conscious side to to catch up with, and and I I, I explain that only because of the direct relation to mental health because I've lived, I lived in my, about 15 years ago, I'll be blunt. I was in denial. I, there was something definitely not right with me that needed to be better when it came to issues around depression and anxiety, but I was just deny, deny, deny. And you know, did you feel? I, did you also feel at the time that it was affecting your art? That denial. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Because uh, I was not productive. I was um, doubtful. I was doubting myself. I would ask questions like, you know, who will who will want to listen to this? Uh, am I good enough? I am not good enough. Like, look at all these people that are winning awards and you know getting accolades and stuff. I, I've never won anything, even though I had, but I'm like, Oh, I never won something <laughs> of, you know, of that caliber. Mm -hmm. So obviously, obviously I'm not good enough. And so I just wouldn't write. I would doubt myself. I would sporadically write. And you know, what's funny is I had talked with that tone so confidently, you know, like with such vigor that of course, you know, if you tell your brain anything, you know, your brain will think that's the truth. So if you say the sky is green, if you tell your brain enough times the sky is green, then your brain's going to say, okay, the sky is green, you know? So, you know, whether it's true or not is, is irrelevant. So, and of course, and I became belligerent about it too. I remember in those days, I would actually tell my wife, you know, I would talk to her like with such vigor and passionate why I wasn't good enough, why I wasn't a musician. Every negative thought, I would frame it as the reality. And I put quotes, I put reality in quotes, you know what I mean? And so I lived for so many years where, A, I don't have a problem, even though I did have a problem. It was sort of like this vicious cycle. And then B, Meanwhile, I'm struggling and I'm complaining about my music career and that type of thing, but still not that's, you know, it's nothing to do with me. It's the outside world. And I, my, my negative thoughts and my depression had nothing to do with it. So finally, of course, like most illnesses, it, it starts gradually and it starts to get worse. And when it became paralyzing that I couldn't do many things, I would cancel engagements I would uh, be paralyzed. I couldn't, I wouldn't go anywhere. I wouldn't do anything. I couldn't talk to anybody. It just became enough. And I saw the impact it was making on my loved ones that, okay, I need to do something about it. And so I finally admitted it by going to the doctor, you know, and, um, and getting, starting uh, psychotherapy. You know, this is all what I'm describing here is years and years and years. And so was the few compositions that I was composing in those early years reflective of that? Most likely, but I, I definitely wasn't admitting it. And even when I started to admit to myself and my loved ones 
that, you know, this was what was going on and uh, I was getting help for it and I was, uh, you know, going through a process of therapy. It took years before I, st- I started to finally sort of say, okay, let's just compose what feels right, what feels like me. This is who I am. So interesting because what I'm hearing also is that with your music, your subconscious was finally having a direct conversation with the conscious mind, which was lying to you in many ways, as it can do. It was recognizing that there was a different self than what your conscious mind was trying to convince you was there. I love that. I agree. I completely agree with that. And it was like, I think that was part of the turmoil and the battle in those years. It was, was that. So, you know, it's, I'm still working on that to this day. How do I, how do I go with the gut? You know, everyone talks about the gut, you know what I mean? How do you, how do you go with your intuition to know what's right and what's wrong? How do we know, like, am I, talking this way or making decisions this way because of a reflection of, you know, the issues I have related to depression or mental health issues, or am I being realistic here to what's the best way to move forward? And there's really no answer to that question. It's sort of blurred a bit, you know, but I am getting better because I, I work at it. So Right. So can you describe, this is probably an impossible question. Can you describe how you're art, your composition style, or actually what you put out, how that's changed as a result of this shift? So I, when I first started composing in earnest, especially when I was in university, I felt like I had to prove myself. And proving myself as a composer of modern classical music means coming up with something elaborate, technical, something that will catch attention just for the sake of catching attention and showcase, you know, the technical aspects. I mean, we still live in a for anybody who's a aficionado of classical music, we still live in this world where classical music is treated as a as a sport you know what i mean as a as a, like an olympic sport like why is you know how fast somebody can play a run on a violin or a cadenza for a piano concerto you know that physical pursuit is what we often hum and haw about as far as being this amazing thing so i just i just naturally went into that line and especially because of my insecurities I felt like I really had to compose very technical music. And as a pianist composer, I felt like I had to showcase that. And so if you listen to my very first album that I put out in about 2007, which was a a collection of solo piano pieces or compositions of my own that I performed, it is so freaking intense. You know what I mean? It's just like, how many how many notes can I fit into X amount of minutes? You know, I mean, that was, you know, it felt a bit like that. Now, that being said, I'm proud of that album. And, and I'm proud of that album because that reflected where my mindset was at that particular moment. And there's a lot of really interesting compositional musical things going on there. But as the years went on, what I ended up realizing, the more I started to get my mental health under control, the more I realized that 
the only thing that I have to prove to anybody is that I'm being myself. And so if being myself means I'm going to show through my music, uh, I choose to show different versions of me through my music, what things I believe in, things that are close to my heart, different aspects of my moods and my personalities, that I could be vulnerable enough to share that in music. And I don't think, you know, especially those years after I graduated from university where I felt I had to, you know, fit a certain mold of what a successful composer, the type of music that a successful composer composes, that's what I think I gradually veered away from. And, and it's, and it's awesome. It's been an awesome experience because I I think I mentioned this in our salon talk um, recently that the moment I stopped caring what people think of my music and just compose the music that feels true to me. The moment I stopped worrying about what the outside, how the outside world might perceive that, ironically, what's happened is more people are way more interested in what I do. Right, because they can see an authentic person. They know they know what they're getting. They're getting the fullness of you, right, when they hear your work. I guess so. I guess so. And I, you know, I'm not really into you know, as an, a composer of modern art music, I'm not exactly the type of person that's best, you know, in the music business to gauge, okay, well, what kind of music will really <laughs> resonate with people? You know, that's not my thing, but, but I think you're right. I think it's no coincidence that in the recent years, some of my most successful projects were the ones where I just like said, oh, you know, this is, this is, really touching me. This is really engaging me and close to my heart. And I'm just going to do it. And even though it might be a little ridiculous structurally or the way I might share it or that kind of thing might be a little ridiculous, I'm going to do it anyway. And people seem to be interested in that, which is great. And I love it because I love connecting with people about, you know, music and that type of thing. But, but you're right. I mean, anytime you're just true to yourself, then somehow I think there's this sixth sense when we interact with fellow human beings, you know, that they can just sense it. Wow, there's something cool here. And uh, there's no other way to be, you know, than mm-hmm. that. So you mentioned your, your training at a conservatory. And as you know, UNCSA is a, is a competitive conservatory itself. And um, you're also a music educator and have been for many years. How would you like to see conservatories prepare their students for professional success while also tending to their overall well-being? Or I guess another way to ask this is what would have been most helpful for you when you were a student? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And you know, I've been teaching music and conducting workshops and working with young musicians for oh decades now and you know, and seeing private students and you know, that, that, that's that been a one aspect of my music career that's been so gratifying. But, you know, one of the things that I I have struggled with in this system that I work, work within uh, and the culture of music education, especially the culture around education of specifically classical music, mm-hmm. you know, the classical music tradition is, is just like I was talking about earlier for myself, what, what defines success? What defines a great, well-honed classical musician? And, 
you know, I personally don't have an answer for that. But I think the problem with the decades and centuries of the classical music tradition is they have tried to make that defined. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and for me, music is art. I love sports. And there's definitely a lot of similarity between the discipline of being an athlete and the discipline of being a performing artist, like a musician or a dancer. For sure, there's so many similarities. But the one thing there is no similarity is how do you define success? So um, an athlete, it's pretty, you know, and, and, you know, maybe some people might argue with this, but it's pretty black and white. You know, if I'm an athlete in an Olympic sport, I know I have really reached the pinnacle of success if I'm able to qualify for an Olympic Games, if I'm able to place, if I get a top 10 or a gold medal, a gold, silver, or bronze. These are black and white, easy things to gauge for an athlete to say, okay, well, it's pretty obvious where I'm at. You know, and these are the rules of my sport and these are the things. Now, we've tried to do that, that same type of thing in music. We've tried to say that if you are a great pianist, you need to, a great piano student, you need to play exceptionally well everything. You need to be, you need to be proficient at playing a Bach prelude and fugue, a Beethoven sonata, a Chopin ballade a Debussy Nocturne or Prelude, um, and a certain amount of modern works. And if you can't fit that criteria, then somehow you're flawed. You're not an artist. You're not, you don't earn the right to call yourself that. For me, that's the starting problem with the system, especially in this day and age where we are trying to live in a world as we should be, of being more inclusive, trying to break away from the traditions that this is something that we should only revere old, white, dead European white guys. You know what I mean? It's just stunning that we still live in a world like that. Now, does that mean, am I saying that we revere Bach too much or Beethoven or that People shouldn't aspire to learn that music. Absolutely not. I love Bach. I love Beethoven. I wouldn't be where I was as a composer, my craft as a composer, and my my pianist training if I didn't get exposed to that. But who's to say with a mark, with a winning of a competition or a festival, that so-and-so is not a musician because they are not able to, to do these things. We need to figure out how do we nurture and help young people develop their talents without pigeonholing them and saying, well, if you don't fit into this mold, you're a lesser musician or a lesser artist than others. That's for me, the fundamental problem. If we solve that and come up with some kind of a more nurturing system to let people blossom in their talent from where they're at, then I think we're heading in the right direction. And I think some institutions are definitely starting to do that, which is awesome. But I still think we have a long way to go. If you were running a conservatory, what would be the first system you would change? What would be your first fix towards that goal? So 
I, I should make it very clear that I have never worked for a post-secondary institution um, or a conservatory or even a music school for that matter. When I, when I graduated myself from university many years ago in music, I instantly opened up my own private teaching practice. You know, what I've been blessed with being a, a private teacher is nobody's telling me what I should or shouldn't teach. And basically my attitude about teaching is I look at every single student and I look at that student and I say, now what makes them tick? And I literally ask them, what would you like to learn? What, is, what are you passionate about? And then I construct a pedagogical plan in order to help that student get to that point while exposing them to certain things. So if I have a student who's like, you know, I just want to play pop music. I want to be the best pop piano player I can be. Well, does that mean, oh, well, we're just, you know, playing pop pieces and I don't, we don't do any ear training or musicianship exercises or technique exercises or theory? Of course not, but it's all designed around what their goal is. So if, to answer your question, what I think institutions should do is- Because presumably, is, presumably uh, an institution is trying to train classical, its classical music students to be professionals, right? Yes. So what, right. I, would, what, I, would, what I would suggest to institutions is let your teachers be more creative. Mm. You know what I mean? Let your, you know, yes, okay, the institution might have underlying fundamental principles that sort of connects everybody together and that type of thing. But honestly, first and foremost, an institution's power or greatness is based on their faculty. And they're giving them the ability to be creative with their students, you know, and deciding what kind of program. So if a school has an end of the year um jury, I remember I, they used to call them juries when I was in university or end of year recital. But the school says, everybody who does this kind of thing, in order to pass, you know, that part of their degree, they have to present all of this different type of repertoire. Well, you know, for me, like I said earlier, why? Why? Why does everyone have to do that? Now, if the also, it must if, be so excruciatingly boring to the jury, right? Oh, I know. I mean, you can see the cobwebs <laughs> just growing on the people just sitting there, you know what I mean? Right. And it's just, oh, I'm going to hear the same prelude and fugue again for the 1,000th time in my, in my many years of teaching in the, this institution. You know, it's just, there, where's, the, where's the inspiration for both the student and the, the teacher? You know, just to change things up a bit if it, it does that. Now, I'm not saying that that traditional type of approach is bad if that's what the student's goals are to be the most well-rounded pianist. That is their goal and that's what and they're passionate about. It. They enjoy it. Um, that challenge. Good for them. And I think that's wonderful. And and you know, maybe institutions, if they're really focused on that, then they have to brand themselves as that. But I think we need more institutions to give the faculty freedom to help students become the best artists we can. And there's a, there's a reason why so many drop out, you know, there's too much pressure as, as was mentioned in our salon last week of having to work with students to help them through all this pressure 
You know, there's so much pressure. There's going to be pressure. Like I have pressure. I feel pressure in my life to be the best artist I can be. And guess what? I'm doing everything I love. You know, I'm composing the pieces. I think that's a true meaning of myself. I can't imagine having to get yourself pumped up to do something when you have, you're playing repertoire that you really don't care about, you know, that doesn't resonate with you. We want people to be artists, not just teach them skills, but teach them how to be an artist and not robots. Many thanks to Frank for allowing us to include excerpts from Music for Self-Isolation in this episode. The piece you're currently hearing features Richard Moore on the vibraphone. You can purchase and or listen to Music for Self-Isolation wherever you get your music. I encourage you to do so. If you'd like to read a longer version of this interview, please visit uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you would let us know by leaving us a rating. By the way, I really encourage you to watch the recording of Creative, Vulnerable, and Well, the virtual salon I referenced earlier in the episode. It was a particularly rich, inspiring, and moving event. You can access the video recording at uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts... Thank you for listening.